I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan Wed Podcast, episode 114. It is I, Matthew Bigelow, your host. And you can go to MatthewPMBigelow.com for all the podcasting needs. We've got photos, notes, ideas, and more for you there. That's MatthewPMBigelow.com. This is, of course, the podcast from Japan recorded in the suburbs of Shinjuku, the Toshihisacho Studios in Tokyo, Japan. The Asia. And this podcast covers AI trends, markets, surveillance, Oh, uh, we also got the rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific, eating the bugs, um, all that stuff. It's what I consider to be uh, over the horizon uh, future technology that is coming uh, to us like the like the sun breaching the horizon and, and then that sun's going to hit you sooner or later. These are the things that we are concerned about on this podcast. So thank you for joining us once again. Uh, I'm having what you're having. If you know what that means, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. A um, lot going on in the world today. We might as well just begin um, the with war. Why don't just begin with war? Hello, have you heard about the war? Die for the war. Everybody moves. Die for the good, for the good. Die for the war. Die for the war. So um, I'm not taking sides in, this, in these wars, and uh, I'll just give you a brief example why. No one's taken my side. <laughs> uh, I was in Japan for the financial collapse of the Lehman Brothers. No one came to me helping me. I worked really hard at that time. Then the Fukushima disaster happened, and no one came to help me during that time. You know, uh, of course, that's a bit of a different story. And what happened after that? And then we had uh, COVID eventually happened. No one came to me, you know, so... I'm always being asked to help and support and care for others. But when it all comes to dear old MatthewPMBigelow.com, not a lot of care coming back my way. So uh, I say good luck to everyone out there. Pick your fights. Choose your battles. I'm not joining any of it. It's not worth my time. My battle, my, my pick, my, my, the thing that I'm interested in that I like to cover and keep a focus on are the lists that I just brought to you at the beginning of the podcast. Like The only reason I'm covering the war in the Pacific Indo region is because it's going to involve me and my children at some point. You know, I'm in Japan, so may as well get ready for it at some point. Uh, and then, of course, surveillance capitalism and, and the just the, the, the slow tech creep coming into our lives. I think that's a lot more relevant for the future of humanity than some of these skirmishes that break out around the world. But of course, as we all know from history, the World War I and the World War II, or the First World War and the Second World War, uh, World War One and World War Two, is that these areas that can seem small eventually erupt and drag us all with it in their horrid, horrid river of, of disgusting uh, depravity and death. But uh, overall, well, I'm not taking sides. So, but it's interesting that I, I just wanted to cover this a little bit. Coming to us from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. Quote, stop the war! 300 protests in Fukuoka, which is in the uh, southern island there. Not quite Okinawa, but I just mean like Kyushu, the main four islands of Japan. Kyushu, 
Kyushu, Honshu, Hokkaido, and Shikoku. Fukuoka. Uh, and of course, you know, all you need to do is look at what these people are holding, the type of signs that they're holding, and you kind of get an immediate look or insight as to what side of the war they're protesting on. So, of course, this comes to us in relation to Israel and, and Hamas and Gaza and all that. Don't really know too much about it myself, which is why I just stick out of it. Um, I say, you go fight your battles, I'm, you know, go for it. Um, but the picture of the protest is in Fukuoka, and there's people holding a sign that says, Free Palestine, no justice, no peace. Now, that's obviously a left-wing group. Um, no justice, no peace. You can really identify left-wing groups. When I was in university, I joined a lot of um, protests because at the time, the government of uh, British Columbia, Canada, was increasing the tuition by 33% a year. So I joined the school, the University of Victoria, and then uh, right after I joined, the government's like, yeah, you're going to have to pay 33% more tuition every year that you join this university. So I'm like, what? So major protests happened. Nothing happened as a result. Um, but uh, a lot of those protests were reunion and uh, communist and socialist and things like that. It was British Columbia on Vancouver Island. Uh, not a lot of right-wing protests going on there at the time. But So I'm from that from that zone, from that education, um, a lot of my university days were spent with those types of groups. So I can really identify them very quickly. Uh, the, anyway, so you have this group of people in Fukuoka and they are uh, protesting for peace in the Gaza Strip. <laughs> Could you imagine? Hey, I have an idea, everybody. Hold back. Just stop what you're doing. Peace in the Middle East. I know it's crazy. Uh, I should say, why don't we change it from the Middle East to the Middle Peast? Hmm? Ever thought of that? <laughs> uh, but anyway, so it's obviously a left-wing group. And I ran into a left-wing group in Tokyo as well. But anyways, let's just read from here to give the listeners an insight as to how some segments of the Japanese populace fall into the, into the team deciding factor between Israel and Gaza. Again, I'm on neither team. Uh, about 300 people march. But what about all the... I know, I know, I know. About 300 people marched in the southwestern city of Fukuoka on October 22nd, calling for an end to attacks on Gaza amid ongoing fighting between Israel and the Islamic organization Hamas. The participants called for a ceasefire, with one saying, quote, This problem cannot be solved by war. The demonstration was organized by Osaya Osama uh, El-Jamal, 49, a native of the Gaza Strip one of the two Palestinian territories, an associate professor at Kyushu University living in Fukuoka and the Fukuoka Palestine Association, a citizens group that has long supported Palestinian refugees. Prior to the march, El-Jamal repealed that he appealed, sorry, El-Jamal appealed that he wants people to know what is happening in Palestine. And so it goes, kind of goes around the... Um, uh, the, the article there and nothing much happens, but... I was taking my daughter for a walk. She's about five months old. Get her into this thing called the Baby Bjorn, which is like a 
a thing you put on your chest and it straps around the baby and you can take the baby. You've probably seen parents walking around with like a baby inside of like a fabric net basically on their, on their chest and the legs and arms are flopping out the sides and it's kind of cute. Then uh, of course we ran across a protest at uh, Koji Machi police station of all places. And there's a growing uh, police presence around there. Well, it was a police station, but I mean, leading up to there, a lot of uh, the Japan kind of riot police were waiting in buses and things like that. So they're kind of maybe anticipating that uh, his nat's going to hit the Anfe, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I recorded them. And the, another way you can tell you're dealing with left-wing protesters is drums. They love drums. Um, and they're not very good at drums. I've been drumming for 20 years. In the past 10 years or so, a lot of drumming to metronomes. So, and a lot of band rehearsals with metronomes. I'm not pro, but I'm pretty good. And I know what in time and out of time are like, because I've seen it and I've been it. I've been out of time a lot. And I've been in time more so because of the practice with the metronome. And uh, left-wing protests just have, they're terrible with time. They're great with energy, but they're not good with time. Like, they're out of time. That You can't really count one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and expect people to understand what the hell you're doing. Um, but another thing that uh, left-wing protests do, and this is a little bit more modern, is the repetition of the chant. So one person chants, like, hell no, we need more. And then everybody else will say, hell no, we need more. Uh, and it's like... Um, a call and response tactic. Um, it's like a crowd management. There's a real kind of weird um, outdoorsy con- subconsciousness that takes over uh, the in left wing protests. It's uh, it's a little collectivist, which is of course something they really like. And I'm not really against left wingers or right wingers. I'm not really one of either. Um, the you know sometimes I get into like a, a field of left-wing thought. And I think, oh, that's interesting. But then, but then like right away, somebody wants to become a communist and overthrow capitalism. I'm like, oh, okay. So we're just going to overthrow capitalism, are we? And then uh, right-wingers will be like, yes, we need more protection. And that's why we can't allow any of these people in our society ever. I'm like, what do you mean by these people? It's like some vast amount of population. I'm like, well, they might have some people worthwhile, you know, so... Uh, it kind of goes both ways, but these days I honestly find, um, not, 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 not in the mainstream, but in the counterculture more, not, not necessarily right wingers, but just not even conservative types, but just not left wingers to be a lot more engaging or willing to balance both sides. I find that, uh, a lot of left-wingers kind of approach things very, very directly and without actually researching the other side. The other side is just bad. And anyway, so I recorded this protest that was happening outside of the Koji Machi police station. Um, and as you can hear, it's just, you know, it's recorded on my phone um, at that time. I'll read from the newspaper here a little bit more. Ejimal's 16-year-old daughter, who spoke on behalf of the participants, said, quote, I have not been able to contact my grandparents in Gaza. I need your help so that the war can be over soon and life can return to normal, end quote. That's kind of a... Oh, here's the chanting. 
Anyways, you kind of get the idea. Good memory retention in the crowd, though. Like, they're kind of going, saying, like, and then the crowd immediately goes, uh, usually in the um, left-wing circles and university protesters that I see, it's like, hell no, we won't go. And everyone's like, hell no, we won't ever been there again. <laughs> Not very smart, it seems. No good memory retention, but it is Japan. And people here, on average, are pretty smart. So I just wanted to begin off with that, that uh, there is a presence of the war that is affecting Japanese daily life here in the newspapers. And as I just said, that thing I recorded on my phone as I was out walking my daughter. But there was not a lot of uh, citizen engagement. I kind of mentioned, oh, this is noisy. And some office workers laughed and continued on their way. So it's, it's like... It's still in the periphery. A couple of more things on the uh, war here. NHK reporters in Gaza Strip detail ongoing horrors. So, again, we have an, another new media outlet, more reporting on the Gaza Strip side, the Palestinian side. I haven't seen a lot of um, reporting on the Israel side. If if you have, send me links. I'm more open to that. You can contact me at MatthewPMBigelow.com. Just according to what I found, it's been more on the Palestinian side than the Israel side. Uh, and I think there's some reasons historically for that. It has to do with the oil embargoes in the mid-70s that affected Japanese prices for oil and affected a lot of uh, daily life over here. Uh, so it kind of goes back. It's all cyclical. Next, we have more on the Asia-Pacific side. South Korea, U.S., and Japan hold first-ever trilateral aerial exercise in face of North Korean threats. And then, of course, in relation to that, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un meets Russian top diplomat in Pyongyang. So the front of the Pacific War, as it's beginning to be established and ideally launched, according to sources, in 2026 to 2027, including China's retaking of Taiwan, the, um, the nexus point or the flashpoint of the Taiwan Straits has now expanded up into North Korea as North Korea is included in the fold of Russian, Iranian, Chinese relations there. So um, it, it refocuses the um, footing, uh, the war footing for both um, America, Korea, and Japan because uh, America has a whole bunch of ba bases in Japan and Korea, and if they don't call to there, they will lose a massive footing of economic power in the uh, you know East Asia sphere of influence. All right, so that's the war for today. Let's move on to Japan Society 5.0. It's a big one for today because I was there. I was in Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. 
AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities, helping us enjoy more fulfilling lives. Society 5.0, for the betterment of human lives. All right. Thank you, Klaus Schwab. Um, this is, of course, about uh, a tech event that I went to the other day called C-Tech. Have you ever been to C-Tech? Do you know what it means? So I've just pulled up this quick article to explain it. And I went there as the CEO of the Japan What Podcast, the CEO, founder, and overall team leader here at the Japan What Podcast. And so this comes to us from the Asahi Shimbun. Asia and Japan watch AI capable of conversation labor on display at trade show um, from October 17th. We're recording this on October 24th. Um, all right. Well, hold on a second here. Artificial intelligence is in the spotlight at the combined exhibition of advanced technologies, otherwise known as C-Tech a high-tech trade show that kicked off at Makuhari Messe in Chiba on October 17th. The event was open to the media a day earlier, and many companies showcased their new AI-driven technologies. The use of AI is spreading into a wide variety of fields for many different purposes, from solving labor shortages to offering human-like companionship. Now, nobody needs companionship from AI. This is like a dream from science fiction movies, and it's a, a giant waste of, of expertise and intelligence. Like when you use AI to do automatic factories or computer recognition, stuff like that, like, oh, that person has a gun, that person has a knife, send the police over there in like a stadium situation, uh, security in that case. Well, then that's like, it's just automating a function is what that's doing. And it's called artificial intelligence. But people hear the word artificial intelligence, they immediately associate it with 1970s in science fiction or Ray Bradbury or um, George Orwell, or they associate it with um, uh, Star Trek, like data. Like you're going to have this automaton person that's not a person, but it is a person. And they're going to be your friend, but they're not your friend. And how do you make them your friend? Or Isaac Asimov, the, the rules of robotics include, but you look at those all those rules and all those robots are, are existing in those parameters of fiction to drive a narrative. Oh, the robot thought it was being moral, but it wasn't being moral. And so it drives like a, a philosophical question about what means what it means to be robotics and all that. And that's why most of these people now writing about AI and, and everything like that are coming from it from like a Hollywood or a film perspective. Like, oh, I saw the movie with uh, a smart robot and it was like a human, but it wasn't a human. And now I'm going to go to this AI conference and I'm going to talk to a screen and it's going to say hello and it's going to know who I am. Just like this robot it creates like a, a stupid circular um, narrative within the people and the media, and I hate it, and I just stay away from from it uh, generally. Only only to dunk on it on the podcast, and um, just kind of reiterate the fact that in China these ideas don't exist. Chinese people view robotics as cheap labor. Like, oh, I don't need to pay people and the robots will do it faster and, and sometimes better. Well, then I'm going to use the robot and I don't give 
a flying fernagle about all the people that won't get jobs. I just want the product to be made more quickly and delivered to market more quickly and efficiently. And if I can use something called AI and a so-called robot to do it, then I'm going to do it. So there's a giant um, gap between the understanding. Well, people are using the same words. The um, way about going about it is completely different. So I prefer actually the Chinese method of just kind of thinking about how processes can be simplified with uh, wireless technologies, cloud computing, and um, AI cameras, and then roll it out from there, and and you know you get what you need faster. And you're like, well, what about all the the people in the factories that aren't having their jobs? It's like, well, I'm from North America, and North America sold out its industrial base years and years and years ago, and I was told that was going to be a great thing, and now you're saying it's not. So what's going on here? What? Is going on here. So um, let's take a look here, then I'll get into my notes. Some things from this article include uh, robots for the workforce. The So Thinker, a venture company from Osaka University, exhibited a robotic arm capable of picking up delicate foods such as tofu and irregularly shaped vegetables. All right, so it just uses a lot of sensors in, the, in its so-called fingertips to pick up things and put them into boxes. All right, sure, why not? Um, we'll be getting into some of the other ones. Human-like conversations, boop, nobody needs it, it's stupid, and then that's where it ends. So <laughs> I've, re- I've come across this a lot in mainstream media, and even having worked in mainstream media, where there'll be some sort of amazing development in robotics and cloud technology and wireless communications and AI and factory working and automated of factories and, and, and grocery deliveries and all this. And the person looks at this list and they go, oh, but there's this cute screen that might recognize me and say my name. I'm going to write about that and talk about movies. So it's this constant, how do I get sucked back into the movie Hollywood loop? Because that's my envisioned future, even though that's not necessarily the future that's going to happen. I'm just going to focus on what I hope to be the future while the future exists in front of me in these new forms of robotics that are actually deployed into our world and maybe journalists should be reporting on, but they're not because they're so full of themselves that they want to report on their own personal envisioned future because it's about robots now. Now and not the truth. I don't know what they're thinking. They're not that smart. Anyway, so um, I went to CTEC and I looked at the funding and I asked the boss, who's me, do we have the funding to go to CTEC? And I said, how much is it? And it was like, my boss, me, said, well, it's free. Just got to register in advance. I said, okay, let's do that. And I said, well, if it's free, we can just have a couple of beers, um, maybe if we have time from the convenience store. And we factor in the, the train fare, which is $7 each way. plus So $20 or 2,000 yen for um, the round trip. And I said, okay, well, let's go. Let's figure out a way to go. So there's a lot of weird stuff that's going on at SeaTech. And it's in one of those um, major uh, exhibition halls in Chiba Prefecture, uh, you know, just outside of Tokyo. And there's a, you know, a few hundred booths and people are showing their wares and there's major corporations that are there. And then there's other startups that are there. And then there's kind of these government funded initiatives. And the whole theme of the of CTEC was Japan Society 5.0. And so that's the reason I went actually is because I looked it up and it said CTEC 2023 
Society 5.0. And I said, well, I've been covering Society 5.0 for a really long time, both in the corporate world when I had a corporate gig and then when COVID kind of took care of that uh, with the podcast here. So I went and there was almost nothing like Japan Society 5.0 was just a, a slogan that was stamped on a lot of stuff, but nobody really knew what it meant. And I did find like a booth about Japan Society 5.0 and it was manned by like a really old guy. And I tried to talk to him about Japan Society 5.0 and he kind of got a little suspicious of me when I told him I was a podcaster and I'd been studying it for a few years. And then I was like let on some vocabulary about stakeholder capitalism and all that. And he kind of backed off, which is, which is typical, I guess. Actually, a lot of these... A lot of the places there, I guess they're trying to find ways to make money. Um, and I would be like, I'm a podcaster. And they'd be like, okay, have a nice day. See you later. After talking to me for two minutes or something like that. So screw them. Screw them. Um, so let's take a look here at the C-Tech. Um, I ran into a, 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 a Chinese semiconductor woman. And I'm like, well, are you, should you even be here? Am I violating some sort of sanctions by even talking to you? A very, very aggressive saleswoman wanting me to invest in uh, Chinese semiconductor uh, technology. As you know, uh, there's been a huge amount of United States pressure to kind of really put like the, the kibosh on on AI chip enabling um, technologies exported to China. But this woman was there like really aggressive. She gave me a really great ruler. It's the best ruler I've ever seen. It's like a 20 centimeter ruler or like a nine inch ruler or whatever. And uh, it has the a whole bunch of chips um, diagrams on the ruler and how, how big the chips are. So it's like a reference for chip sizes. This is really cool. And it's very well designed. But most of the stuff at SeaTech it's just really dumb stuff that nobody needs. Like, for example, a family smart lock. That's right. Everybody in your family has a smartphone, and you can all now operate the lock from your phone instead of, you know, having a key. So you have this vulnerability factor where if it's operated by Wi-Fi, what if somebody gets your password? Now they can open your door remotely or they can hack your... What are the, what's the security uh, protocols being enabled for this family smart lock? It sounds kind of ridiculous. Um, but there's a lot of surveillance capitalism going on there. And that's kind of over the overall theme of Society 5.0. Decarbonization, so trying to make money decarbonizing the atmosphere. So using technology and AI to uh, kind of put these carbon suckers in, into places where there's lots of CO2 and then using AI timing to understand when would be the most optimal time to turn on these carbon suckers and then store the carbon and then reuse the carbon and then resell the carbon uh, for a market that's supposedly going to really increase in value over the next 10 years. Like this kind of really strange way of thinking. It's a basically all... SDG 2030, uh, save the world by decarbonizing and reselling and then positioning yourself in a, in, a, in a carbon credit market to redistribute the credits based on the carbon that you're sucking out of the atmosphere. And they have these tiny little devices that are built at scale. So if you need 100 extra carbon suckers, you can just kind of put them out there. And if, if you need 100 less, you just take them away and allocate them somewhere else. So it's, it's like solar panels, but for sucking carbon out of the air. It's, just, it's very strange. Very strange indeed. 
Um, but a lot of the surveillance capitalism exists in the form of just uh, AI cameras that track and monitor. And one good example was for train stations. Um, the, some of their image recognition cameras could identify wheelchairs and uh, canes, like canes for the deaf or blind. In Japan, they have both. Um and so if they realize that someone with a cane is having a problem, they can send a staff to that person so they don't have to call and wait in case they have a problem. Or if somebody is in a wheelchair and it falls over, that can be identified and then they, the staff can go to that person and help them more quickly. And some people who are disabled might think, well, I want to have, have my dignity by me calling people in case I need help. But, well, when you're in like a public space, like a train station, it's really busy. If you are blocking the way uh, because you fell down or fell over or, or something happened, you might be inconveniencing others. And it's a weird thing to say to disabled people sometimes, but it's like, well, you might be the person inconveniencing others right now. And I know that you might have a crazy leg and it's not that good and that everybody around you has nice legs that are really good, but those people with nice legs are also using their legs to get to a destination. And if you fall down in front of them, uh, maybe, you know, maybe it's better to have a, a trained station staff come and assist you than, for example, a bunch of strangers who don't understand how to provide medical assistance to somebody. So there is that. I thought that was kind of good. And the, the what I like about this type of, type of technology is that it's limited to a train station. So you go to the train station and you know that that type of technology is there. And then you leave the train station knowing that that type of technology is over. So you don't have like this... AI camera following you through the cities as you go about your day and it's always trying to analyze what you do. That's China style and it's not good. But when you put parameters on the functionality of this AI equipment, I think it can lead to just wider acceptance and less paranoia. It really makes me paranoid to think about some of the um, capabilities that these cameras can do, especially when it comes to like false positives and stuff like that. Um, there was some self-driving car tech of there, of course, some buses for rural areas. Um, but a couple of things that I thought were really good was a touchless touchscreen. Now that we have touchscreens everywhere, they're dirty. I really don't like touchscreens, especially in public places. An elevator has buttons and you push one button one time and it doesn't really get that dirty. And if you're really paranoid, you can use your knuckle, but... Touch screens have buttons on them, but it's an entire screen and kids use them and people use them and you touch it with your finger and it leaves behind like and it's illuminated the screen. So it leaves behind like a greasy mark. And if you don't have train staff going around cleaning all the touch screens everywhere, everything gets good, good gunky really quick. So there's this uh, technology that uses like mirrors in a, in a computer display and it projects. It looks like it's projecting um, numbers or a screen off of a screen and using like um, the sensor technology, you push a button in the air and it registers that button on a screen. And then that button on the screen will can then unlock a hotel door. So you put 403 and it unlocks the door. So in addition to the um, cleanliness factor, you also have additional security possibly because you're not leaving behind fingerprints, but there is like a, a screen there. So, you know, take that into account. But I like this combination of physical and digital um, because otherwise, sometimes, like I said, with the cameras in the in the AI cameras in the street lights, wherever you go, it's like it, it's a street light, but it's also an AI camera analyzing your behavior. It's too creepy. Um, another one that was really stupid was um, 
<laughs> surveillance capitalism for CO2 visualization software. Don't even know what that means. Smart glasses, of course. It's like, these are amazing smart glasses. And you try them on. It's like a heavy camera on your face. You're like, I don't need this. But one thing that I thought was really interesting was the toilet cloud. Now, the toilet cloud. That's right. The toilet cloud. Have you ever heard of a toilet cloud? The 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 plumbing infrastructure is pretty much already basically equipped for IoT. We all use toilets. We all take dumps. And uh, those dumps need to be monitored by Big Brother, right? No, maybe. But in terms of um, operating major facilities, like an office building with 35 floors, or if you are running a care home, well, as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, you're going to need to have monitoring the parts of these toilets and how well they flush and everything like that. So you can identify problems before they happen, send maintenance people out to clean the toilets or repair the toilets, or if a bunch of toilets are about to have some sort of part that needs to be replaced, you can see what the part situation is on that and order it if, you know, if it's in short supply, order it in advance so you don't have to deal with supply chain issues. Things like that really make sense for toilets and stuff like that. Um, this is Lix. I have the paper right here. The Lixil toilet pouch. Should they call it the Lixil? It's L-I-X-I-L. But I just read it out loud for the first time. Yes, the Lixil toilet cloud. Yes. Wrap your tongue around our beautiful toilet clouds. Um, that makes sense to me, actually, in terms of managing infrastructure and um, if you are running a care home as well, you might want to have some sensors in the toilets in case elderly people fall down or fall over. Uh, you might be able to register that they are needing of, a need of care and send people to them right away. Because we're going to see a major increase in care workers. And we're also going to see a major increase in care workers who don't care about their jobs. So maybe they might need to be prompted to go and help people because they're busy tapping on their phones, thinking that, you know, the 90-year-old Mr. Takeshi is taking a big, long dump. But in fact, he's having a cardiac arrest event from too many booster shots on the on his bathroom floor on the 38th floor of his um, care home facility. So there is that. I thought that was actually a really good solution. The The Internet of Toilets is, of course, uh, something that is just makes sense. Makes sense. Another interesting one for hotel chains and stuff like that is the Internet of Dryers and Washing Machines and stuff like that, where like a, a company provides them to you as a service and repairs them and takes them away and puts them in. And it just makes you manage one less thing. But here, for example, is um, just how crazy, just how crazy people think the future is going to be. And it's always like a, a science fiction movie. This comes to us from Beyond 5G, N-I-C-T, the future life in Beyond 5G and even Beyond 6G era. You see, we don't even have 6G rolled out for the public. China launched a satellite, but for the public use in general, barely anybody knows if they're using 5G or 4G at this point. But again, we now have beyond 6G already. And this is just the way a lot of these um, uh, IT people think that when, when they're when they're so far up in their own software and cloud technology that they don't really know how the real world works. Scenario one, a cybernetic avatar society, a day in 2035 from the diary of a technology development manager. <laughs> so I'll just read one here. 
from 9.30 to 10.30. Telepresence meeting with executives from Tokyo headquarters to discuss new product planning while staying at home in Kyoto. Uh, XR, uh, mixed reality teleconferencing among 3D avatars. I was a little nervous when the president's avatar appeared in front of me, but I moved next to the president in 3D space, handed him a VR product prototype, and asked him to experience it remotely with haptic gloves. We were able to get his go-ahead right away. So it just all worked. So do you think that's really going to happen? I don't. I really don't. Maybe in certain cases, but that's too crazy. So there's like this combination of insanity of just everything's going to be in the cloud and we're going to be in the metaverse and I'll have this haptic glove and I'll approve of projects. It's like, (laughs) I don't know about that. Um, Another um, good one was the... Beyond 5G in the 20th. It's, it's all based on the Japan Society 5.0 stuff. So when you have like the companies providing the digital non-touch screens or, for example, another one that I saw, which was a, um, a, a sonar pulse uh, kit that's put on the back of a, of a camera for a car. Like cars have all these cameras on them now for insurance purposes. When it rains, the camera gets blocked and you can't see it. But you put like this, this company had like this sonar pulse kit where it would feed a pulse to the camera from the back of the camera and it would kind of poof, like a laser was shooting water vapor, like just poof, 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 poof. It would just poof, 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 the water off the front of this camera, clear it right up so that you can, um, you know, do your surveillance capitalism driving while you're in the rain. It's just a very simple solution that could apply to trucks, cars, motorcycles, any kind of camera system on a car could use this in it and you sell it to a variety of manufacturers or even sell the idea. And now you have that kind of engineer's dream where one tiny thing you built is in everything, everywhere, all the time, and nobody even realizes what it is, but we all use it and life is better because of it. Those kinds of mixtures of, you know, of the physical and the digital are kind of what I'm trying to focus on right now. Because you get into like these major corporations and they're envisioning the future it's like, well, we're actually not in a good position right now. We were in a pretty good position before COVID. But now that we're like post-COVID, almost four years now since COVID hit, and that uh, all this war is breaking out and the economy is falling apart, maybe pull your heads out of your fucking asses and focus on the world around you as it is right now and build on that because it's like, imagine, imagine telling somebody before 2005 what the computer market was going to look like in 10 years. I mean, you wouldn't include the smartphone in those projections at all. But from 2005 to 2015, the smartphone became the most ubiquitous product ever created in the history ever of man, of mankind, of people kind, to be Justin Trudeau type. Uh, So what are we doing right now? Do we really think that in the next 25 years, we're going to be rolling out carbon capture technology to make strategic aviation fuel or whatever it's called, environmentally safe aviation fuel and create a market cap through the green credit societies and, 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 and basically just be a giant lying society and, and believe
believing all this stuff exists when it doesn't, or is something else going to happen and come along? So it's time to like focus on what the what the fudge is actually in front of you and find solutions for that. And all these giant major Japanese companies that still believe it's like 1995 and we can envision the future like some sort of cartoon from 1945 where we're all the Jetsons and we're driving rocket ships to the moon and we're you know uh, getting blowjobs on Mars. None of that's None of that's happening. So we need to focus on the future. And that's going to be my evaluation for Japan Society 5.0 right now, is that there's are, there are some companies that are trying to utilize the technology as it exists right now to make life easier and better. That sonar pulse camera and the digital touchless screen just being two of them. But the vast majority are living in la-la land and uh, trying to shoehorn in products into existence that don't need to be there. One final one thing that I will say is that there's a Taiwanese company there called Delta, and they have data centers, and then they build on the data centers, and they roll out like drone technology. But it's not drone technology for some future product. They rolled out drone technology to monitor bridges for the like the bullet train bridges in Taiwan. Uh, and they go underneath these bridges, but the GPS cuts out. So they angle the camera up so the camera can see the edges of the bridges. And there's markings there. And now you don't need the GPS signals. And now you can do accurate bridge monitoring with drones to see which part of the bridges need maintenance and things like that. So it's not some like, we need drones for the future. They already rolled it out. They figured it out. It's a product that exists and it's being used already. Uh, and it's all it's 2023. A lot the drone technology for Japan is like, whoa, if we create this thing for monitoring pillars, uh, it could be used in underwater scenarios. And here's our prototype. So everything's like a prototype for the future, but we don't know if it's going to be used in the future because it hasn't been sold to a company that's going to shelve it yet. But this uh, Taiwanese company, they had English, Japanese, and Chinese-speaking staff on hand at all times. They explained everything clearly, uh, concisely, and just everything they were doing made perfect sense for the world that we're living in. But when I contrasted it with a lot of the Japanese companies, no English speakers, very shy, talking about futuristic scenarios where they envision returns on profit based on 2030 SDG goals and their Japan Society 5.0 mandates. It's, it's, it's like a bridge to nowhere. So the Delta people are building bridges to somewhere, but a lot of the Japanese companies are building bridges to nowhere. And that's my Japan Society 5.0 for today, October 24th. 2023. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology based, human centered society. industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face in time it will for example free us from the stress of driving allowing us to safely visit anyone anytime we will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost no matter where we are all right, we're going to take a look at a new product right now. So let's get that going on right now. 
kind of relates to Japan Society 5.0. In Japan first, cash register free walkthrough food store to open in Yokohama, Tokyo, from Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. A store where customers can grab items and leave without the hassle of scanning items at a cash register will open in Yokohama on October 27th in a nationwide first. Telecommunications firm NTT Data Corp and supermarket operator The Daye will open and operate the Catch and Go store. Unlike shops with typical self checkouts, the time consuming task of scanning items will be unnecessary. Instead, customers will use a dedicated smartphone app to pass through gates at the shop's entrance. Ceiling mounted cameras and weight sensors on the product shelves will detect which items customers have grabbed, automatically adding them to their shopping carts. Payments will go through pre registered credit cards or other cashless methods using QR codes. And it goes on from there. Now, Again, I'm not going to really download an app to go to a store. I'm not sure how much I really believe this is This is like the, the dehumanization of the shopping experience. And I don't really need much humanization, to be honest. I don't mind packing my own groceries. Um, scanning them is kind of a ball ache if I have to scan like $200 worth of groceries. I don't want to scan them all myself. You should have somebody there entrusted with that amount of value going through your shop to scan them. But going through an app is the weird thing. Like, um, like why everything has to be done through our phone and our phone becomes this interface for the wider technology at hand. And this is a step towards, um, a 5g society where eventually you don't need the phone The your your face will be your phone, essentially. So it'll have facial recognition to get into the shop. And then if you have preferred status, you'll get coupons that will be applied to your biometrics on your face or something like that. Look at this camera and smile and, uh, you know, you'll get 50 points that you can use towards a purchase of on a bag of chips or something like that, whatever they have in excess stock. Um it could be interesting, but at the same time, it's it's almost like I feel like being herded into a total monitor system where you have to use your face to get your food, and everybody there is using their face to get their food, and then it becomes this cloud representation of you in the commerce in which you exist. And yeah, first step is the phone, but next step is your face. So I'm not sure how like I would use this type of store if I didn't need to have my face being scanned or to have the app in something like that. Such technology already exists at Uniqlo. At Uniqlo, a, a retail store, you, you put a bunch of shirts in a bag and you put it onto a self-checkout desk and it already, it monitors and collects and tabulates everything in advance. And then you pay yourself. Uh, you pay using your own money yourself. Uh, you don't need to have somebody there telling you how much you need to pay and you just pick up all your clothes and leave. So it's not as if you can't do that, but to have like this membership quality via an app and now it monitors and I don't know about it. It could be good for prisons. It sounds like a prison technology, doesn't it? So that is today's new, new product. All right, let's move on to high or not high. High 
or not high? How are we doing for time right now? About, about 45 minutes, 47 minutes. We're kind of running short on time. What causes menopausal women in Japan to go doctor shopping? The Mainichi. <laughs> National Daily since 1922. Now, I want to know, are the doctors high? Are the women high? Are these writers high? Or is everybody else just not high? Um, Let's begin. Symptoms of menopause in women are said to be more diverse than in men, and there is no end to the number of cases in which serious illnesses are overlooked. This has prompted women in Japan to go, quote, doctor shopping, end quote, moving from one medical facility department to another. There is a number of women who have complained of going unheard at a clinic hmm, and been and being told there is no problem, only for the symptoms to persist. Their subsequent checkups at different medical facilities are not only increasing the amounts they have to pay, but the portions subsidized by the government. They need more free stuff. According to a 2007 estimate by Shuzo Nishimura, professor of medical economics at Kyoto University of Advanced Science, based on a survey of about 300 menopausal women, such doctor shopping annually cost in excess of 43.4 billion yen, or about $300 million nationwide for medical examinations. Menopausal women can suffer from a range of symptoms, making it difficult for them to categorize their conditions and communicate them to their physicians. Doctors also need to spend more time with each patient to accurately assess their symptoms. In Japan, where medical care is operated mainly under the health insurance system and services are paid per medical procedure based on the premises of treating illness, compensation is paid to healthcare institutions in the form of medical fees. Okay. <laughs> Any good quotes in here? Uh, Keiko Amano, known as a pioneer of outpatient clinics specializing in women and founder and director of Japanese Association for Gender-Specific Medicine, said, quote, While the growing awareness of gender differences, the number of people seeking outpatient clinics for women is increasing. In order for these clinics to take root, I hope that the government will promote measures to foster general practitioners, blah, blah, blah. So they want the government to help. Anyways, so menopausal women in Japan are going doctor shopping. Are they going doctor shopping where you at? Is this high or is this not high? I feel high just for reading this. High. Or not high. What should we... F- I've been clicking my tongue recently. I don't like that at all. Toyota to fully resume production on Thursday as parts crunchies. Well, that's kind of boring. This is kind of an interesting one. Yeah, we'll focus on immigration then. Let's focus on immigration. Here we go. So a lot of people are saying, oh, Japan is the most homogenized country on earth. And, oh, Japan will never go the way of of certain European countries. And, oh, Japan, Japan, Japan. Oh, it's so nice, Japan. (laughs) But we are seeing more and more immigration. And as um, the birth rate declines, it makes increases in uh, immigration more and more evident. And that's what we're going to focus on for the last thing today. This comes to us from the Sankei News. 
um, immigrants and the Japanese, children in public elementary schools where 43% are foreign nationals also need Japanese language instruction. So this comes to us, this is translated from Google and it's a Japanese headline, which are very different from uh, English headlines. So 80% of the people are Turkish or Jap Chinese nationals in uh, this area in Saitama that we're talking about here today. The Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology announced on the 14th that the number of foreign children enrolled in public elementary, junior high, and high schools in Saitama Prefecture who are having difficulty in daily life or classes and need Japanese instruction is rapidly increasing. This was discovered through an analysis based on a survey. Nationwide, the number has increased 1.8 times in the last 10 years up to fiscal year 2021. But in Saitama Prefecture, it has increased 2.6 times. In particular, Kawaguchi City, the number of students oh, there of foreign nationality increased by 4.5 times. There is also national data showing that children who need Japanese language instruction are less motivated to study after compulsory education and education institutions are looking ways to, to respond. Children of foreign residents do not receive compulsionary education, but based on the Convention of the Rights of the Child, they are guaranteed the same education as Japanese children. The prefectures were the most, uh, with the most people were Aichi, Kanagawa, Shizuoka, Tokyo, and Osaka. But the sixth place, Saitama, saw a sharp increase from 1,188 people in 2012 to 3,133 people in 2021. Uh, the increased rate in the top five prefectures was 1.8 to 1.5 times, and it kind of goes on from there. Um, but this place where in Kawaguchi, the number of foreign students was about 6% of the number of students in the city. And at the largest elementary school, foreign nationals account for approximately 43% of all students. So we can kind of look at, yeah, Japan's this giant homogenized country and there's few few foreigners when you look at the population and aggregate, although it is increasing a lot. But we kind of get like this one place, boop, it kind of pops up on the map. Boop, here is a place where 43% of uh, students at the school are all foreign nationals. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? I don't know what you do. Uh, kind of an interesting uh, trend, though. Uh, and, of course, it's not like the 43% in foreign nationals are um, Europeans. Like, hey, they're British and they're Americans. They're, no, they're Chinese and, and, and Kurdish, or something like that, along those lines. So, what happens when you're in? When you're, how do you, how do you get these? Like, if you, if you have forty three percent of foreign students in a in a, in a place in, in in Saitama, and of that forty three percent, the two leading nationalities are British and Italian. Well. Those two might have their differences, but they probably have a lot more in common in terms of like, you know, Western education, science and all that than say Kurdish people and Chinese people at a school in a rural area of Saitama, not rural, but kind of rural area of Saitama in Kawaguchi. The, the, these are people living there don't know about these cultures really at all. Uh, and then especially the Kurds or a lot of the Islamic types. 
they're there though. And now you have to deal with them. So good luck. Good luck to you. Which side are you going to choose <laughs> in the in the Palestinian uh, Israeli war in this city in Pal in this city when you got like okay well did did the Chinese support the Palestinians or the Jews? Don't really know. It seems like they support whatever side the U.S. does. Well, the U.S. Loves the Jews in this case at the administrative level, at the State Department level. So maybe China's going to be for Palestine. Well, that's good because a lot of our people here are, are Kurds and they're kind of, oh, but are they the Kurds that agree with the Turks or they, or do they agree with the, the Saudis? Which The Saudis are Wahhabi. Which ones are the Sunnis and which ones are the, 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 Shi, the Shiites? And then which ones? Oh, whoa. Good luck in that area of the country. Um, and that, of course, is the demographics there at this time and place. But as those demographics grow on the bottom, they increase their way to the top. So is this just a one-time observation for a tiny little speck of uh, the Japanese geography? Or will we see more specks? Looking at this speck like a piece of pepper, a flake of pepper that is the first one to land on a plate of eggs. Uh, are we just going to get one tiny fleck or or is this the first fleck of many that are descending onto the egg archipelago of Japan? And soon there will be little tiny little pepper communities all throughout the, uh, the, uh, the region here. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, I really wonder. I wonder what the future is for this country when we look at these types of trends. Unless the Japanese people start just having like four or five kids each and just having like a giant baby explosion and vow to lives of poverty and just choose family and raise them however they can and pressure the politicians to abandon their SDG goals and focus more on uh, young people and family, maybe that will be the only way out of this. Because otherwise, I just see uh, the, the politicians having a kind of a, a blank slate to abuse their power and join these new cults for the future that focus on the love of surveillance capitalism, the love of wasting money on future ideals based on science fiction movies, and they loathe the idea of looking at the world as it exists today and finding a solution for it. Nay, they must exist in the nether regions of the mind instead of where the fingers can reach out and apply themselves in the world to mend fences and build things up for the future of humanity. You have been listening to the Japan What Podcast. You found it, episode 114. This has been called Surveilling Surveillance. You found it. It's the Japan What Podcast. Coming to you from the armpit of Asia in the Toshi Hisacho studio in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. Go to MatthewPMBigelow.com for ideas for donations. Didn't plug it all today. It's the way it goes sometimes. Ja Mata Ne! Ja Mata Ne! Ja Mata Ne! Ja Mata Ne! Ja, 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 ja,